The drone strike in downtown Baghdad targeted one vehicle on a busy street, lighting up the SUV and killing the person inside. The Pentagon says the attack took out a senior commander of the Iran-backed militant group known as Kataib Hezbollah and that he was the mastermind behind the drone strike a week and a half ago that killed three American soldiers on a base in Jordan. U.S. officials say Wednesday night strike was part of the retaliation President Biden ordered. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. On Wednesday last week, a U.S. drone strike hit a commander from Kataib Hezbollah, an Iraqi militant group that's part of the so-called Islamic resistance in Iraq. The attack was the latest in the U.S.'s response to a strike by Kataib Hezbollah on a U.S. base in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers. We're going to talk today about what might come next as top Iraqi officials express anger about the attack. How does this latest strike affect talks between the Iraqi government and Washington about the presence and role of American troops in Iraq? This is a dangerous moment in the Middle East. We will continue to work to avoid a wider conflict in the region. But we will take all necessary actions to defend the United States, our interests, and our people. And we will respond when we choose, where we choose, and how we choose. That was U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin responding to the strikes biker type Hezbollah on Tower 22, an American base in Jordan, which is just south of another American base, Al Tamf, in Syria. Since Hamas's 7th of October attacks on Israel, and as Israel launched its assault on Gaza, Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria and U.S. forces have been engaged in tit-for-tat strikes. This attack on Tower 22 was the first that killed U.S. soldiers. We've talked quite a bit on the show before about the dangers of escalation between Israel and Hezbollah, the Iran-backed Lebanese militant group. We've also talked about the Houthis in Yemen and their strikes on shipping around the Red Sea. Today, we're going to focus on Iraq and Syria, the other arena where Iran-backed militants and U.S. forces are fighting one another. So who are Kataib Hezbollah and the Islamic resistance in Iraq? What's the relationship between them and other Shia militias, the Popular Mobilization Forces or Hashid al-Shabi that fought ISIS some years ago? How much can Iran tell the militias it backs in Syria and Iraq what to do? And what does this latest strike in Baghdad mean for negotiations between Iraqi and U.S. officials on the future of U.S. forces in Iraq? To talk about all this, I am very happy to welcome back on to the show Lahib Higel, who is Crisis Group's Iran expert. Lahib, welcome back on. Thank you for having me again, Richard. So let's start with the strike last Wednesday in Baghdad and the Kataib Hezbollah commander that it killed. Sure. So Abu Bakr is a very seasoned Kataib Hezbollah commander who has been part of the group since 2003. So the early days of the U.S. invasion. He participated throughout the various wars that we've seen in Iraq, the civil war, the war against ISIS. And then later on, he has also been responsible for Kitab Hezbollah's operations uh, in Syria. So the U.S. struck a neighborhood uh, known as Al-Mashtal, which is in sort of northeastern Baghdad city. So it borders an area of farmlands, but it's still a a populated neighborhood. The strike occurred very close to his house in a vehicle and killed three others. What's been the reaction in Baghdad? The reaction by the government was quite harsh. And we have now seen statements by the spokesperson of the commander in chief, And the spokesperson of the government essentially saying that 
The U.S. again has violated Iraqi sovereignty. You know, it has conducted strikes that also impact civilians because they occur in populated areas and that the U.S. presence within the coalition forces now has to come to an end. But there's no evidence that it actually did kill civilians. No, that's true. This one was very precise. It was a drone that uh, hit the vehicle and didn't cause any other damage around it. However, the first series of strikes that the U.S. conducted after the attack on Tower 22 that killed three U.S. servicemen did include at least one civilian who was killed and a few others injured. And we'll come to those attacks in a moment. But Lahib, could we back up? Could you talk about what's happened since the 7th of October uh, between Kataib Hezbollah, KH, and other groups that are part of what they call the Islamic resistance in Iraq? So between them and US troops since the 7th of October? Sure. So up until 7 October, we had had a very calm period in Iraq for about a year uh, where there hadn't been any tit-for-tacks between the U.S. and resistance groups in Iraq. Then on 7 October, many resistance actors across the region stated their support for the Palestinians, uh, for Hamas as a resistance group too. And in Iraq, we saw attacks resuming on U.S. assets in Syria and Iraq on the 18th, I believe, was the first one in Iraq. And then since then, it has been a successive escalation. We're now up at above 160 or so attacks against uh, U.S. bases. And in the beginning, it seemed like these groups were mainly conducting attacks sort of as a show in solidarity with what was going on in Gaza. It was drones, rockets, the usual type of weapons that they use that U.S. defensive systems can shoot down. And so I think even the U.S. might have, you know, in the beginning, interpreted this as not uh, an intention to kill. And the U.S. had also retaliated up until end November only in Syria. I think the first attack in Iraq occurred around the 21st of November so we had seen this pre-7 October dynamic still hold to a degree where the U.S. was mainly focused on targets in Syria. When it moved into Iraq, that is when we saw kind of the next step of the escalation on part of these three resistance groups mainly that make up this new brand that is called the Islamic resistance in Iraq that didn't exist before 7 October. And Lahib, so it's Kataib Hezbollah. And who are the other two groups that make up the Islamic resistance? So Kitab Hezbollah, Harakat al-Jaba, and Kitab Sayyid al-Shuhada. And Kitab Hezbollah is the most important actor in this group because it's the lead one, let's say. But also Harakat al-Jaba has been quite instrumental in conducting some of these attacks. And we've also seen strikes by the U.S. that occurred before Tower 22 on bases in Hella City, in Baghdad, that targeted commanders that are part of Harakat al-Jaba, but that also work within the umbrella of the Hashd al-Shaabi. And Lahib, tell me if this is right, but although these attacks on US bases didn't kill any US service people till the attack on Tower 22, it wasn't just drones. At some point, they, they fired missiles in a way that suggests either they did want to kill US service people, or at least they weren't too worried about whether they did so or not. 
Yeah, so on two occasions, short-range ballistic missiles were used against Ain al-Assad airbase in Ambar. And I think that is also when the assessment of the Americans changed, right? And they could have interpreted it that they're going beyond these provocative type of attacks to attacks that could kill. And it's very difficult to know, of course, what the intention of these groups were. But I believe that even the Tower 22 attack in Jordan was not necessarily intended to kill. And, you know, one of the indications of that is that it was a drone. Drones are usually downed by U.S. defensive systems. This one came through and caused a lot of damage, obviously. But also their reaction afterwards was quite clear. They knew what sort of retaliation that this would attract. These groups immediately vacated their bases in eastern Syria and western Iraq. Many of the commanders went incognito. IRGC commanders that were also present, you know, in Syria, elsewhere, also left. So I'm not sure that that was the intention. I think it was more to show the Americans that just like you have struck us in new locations that we didn't foresee, you know, we can do the same thing to you by targeting a base in Jordan, right, that hadn't been struck ever before. And after the Tower 22 attack, it wasn't just that, as you say, Qatay Hezbollah militants, others fled the bases in Syria and Iraq, but Qatay Hezbollah even put out a statement saying that it would stop attacks on the US, presumably because it or Iran or Baghdad was worried about you know, what seemed like an inevitable response from the US. Right. So immediately after the strike on Tower 22, Ismail Qa'ani, who is the commander for the IRGC Quds Force, visited Baghdad. He probably carried a very clear message, which was that the resistance attacks in Iraq need to stop because further escalation could risk Iran also being struck. And the Kitab Hezbollah was under pressure from several sides. So not just the Iranians, but also the Iraqi government that is now trying to hold talks with the Americans on what withdrawal would look like. So Kitab Hezbollah, before the U.S. even had the chance to retaliate, issued a statement in which they said that they would suspend attacks in order not to embarrass the government. So give the government space to do its negotiations. And these are the negotiations over the U.S. troop presence. And those have been ongoing for some time before the 7th of October, but actually had resumed between the Iraqi government and the U.S. just before the Tower 22 strikes. So just days before, the Americans and the Iraqi government had agreed to reactivate the negotiations on what a security partnership between the U.S. and the Iraqi government would look like, and in particular, to find a timeline to phase out the mission of the international coalition forces in Iraq. On 27 January, the Higher Military Commission, including U.S. and Iraqi officials, convened, and uh, right after Tower 22 was struck. So clearly the timing of that was not good for the Iraqi government. And hence, I think the statement of Qatab Hezbollah to suspend attacks just a few days after was because of that. And so there was this strike on Tower 22, 
as you say, then it seemed like the resistance forces were then rattled. They appear to realize they've overstepped, as you say, Ishmael Khani, the Quds commander, the IRGC commander, visits Baghdad. Qatay Hezbollah puts out this statement, but the US had made it very clear it was going to respond. And what even before the Baghdad strike on Wednesday that killed the Qatay Hezbollah commander, it had apparently conducted about 80 strikes in Syria and Iraq. So what did those strikes before the one last Wednesday hit? So less than a week after the Tower 22 strike, the Americans conducted over 80 strikes in Iraq and Syria that targeted locations where you know, the IRGC and its local partners in these countries have stored weapons, logistics hubs, bases in Iraq that did not belong, though, to these three resistance groups. Most of the locations that were struck in Iraq belong to brigades under the Hashd al-Sha'bi that are not involved with this type of resistance activity against the U.S. And so not only did the U.S. not kill relevant commanders, supposedly these retaliatory strikes was to go after the culprits for Tower 22. It seems like that only came with the Wednesday attack in Baghdad, where they killed the KH commander. But the series of attacks before that killed and injured personnel that belong to brigades of the Hashd al-Sha'bi that are not part of Kitab Hezbollah or Harakat al-Najaba. And as I mentioned, it also killed one civilian and injured a few others. We're just going to take a quick break in the show to refer you to another podcast. If you enjoy Hold Your Fire and some of Crisis Group's other podcasts, then do check out The Mediator Studio with Adam Cooper at the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue for great conversations, riveting insights from prominent peacemakers. So do check that out. And now back to the conversation with Lahib. So Lahib, could we talk a bit about Qatayb Hezbollah itself and its relationship with other Shia militias and Shia politics more broadly? So it's the biggest, as you say, of the three Iraqi groups that have branded themselves resistance forces, which mean, you know, in essence, that they're targeting the US in Iraq and Syria. The one-time Qatayb Hezbollah leader, Abu Mahdi uh, al-Muhandis, was famously killed alongside Qasim Soleimani, the um, Al-Quds commander, the uh, IRGC commander that was uh, killed by the Trump government right at the beginning of, I think, 2020. So, you know, it's a group that's traditionally been very close to Iran. Do you want to give us a bit about uh, about its background? Sure. Qatayb Hezbollah is, let's say, the preferred partner, uh, the main partner of Iran in Iraq, and has been for a very long time. Its senior commanders come from the Better organization, which uh, was active against the former regime and operated from Iran throughout the 80s and conducted attacks inside Iraq. Against Saddam Hussein's regime. Exactly. Against the Saddam Hussein regime. And when the U.S. invaded in 2003, Iran very quickly established Kitab Hezbollah based on a few senior commanders that came out of the better organization. And at that time, they were not the only resistance group. They were not the main resistance group. If you remember, 
Uh, one of the most notorious ones was Jaish al-Mahdi, which belongs to Muqtada al-Sadr. But Muqtada al-Sadr's Mahdi army was crushed in 2008 by former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. And at that time, things were quieting down in Iraq. Many of the groups that existed as resistance groups to the U.S. occupation at the time did not cease to exist, but did not have a, a significant target either, right? And then the U.S. withdrew in 2011 and only came back because ISIS took over a third of the country. For about three years that the anti-ISIS campaign was going on, these groups were on the same side as the U.S., the tensions arose when ISIS was militarily defeated and these groups that organized themselves under the umbrella of the Hashid that later became another security institution in Iraq, they came out as victors of this war. They expected to benefit from the spoils of that war. They expanded throughout Iraq and they established a network, an extension for Iran into the rest of the region through Syria primarily. So Kitab Hezbollah has been a very important group throughout the post-2003 period in Iraq. And they have also been perhaps the most professional and disciplined group that is very close to the IRGC. So I realise this is probably going to be a bit of a simplification. But if you look at Shia militancy in Iraq, you mentioned Muqtad al-Sadr, the former head of the Mehdi army. And if people want more background on him, actually, we did a whole episode about him uh, last time you were on Lahib about, I think, about 18 months ago. But he started off fighting the Americans what, shortly after 2003. Now he's entered politics. He's adopted kind of a an Iraqi nationalist position, opposes the U.S. troop presence, but also opposes Iran's influence. Then alongside him, you have all the Hashtar Shabi that are not part of the Gataib Hezbollah-led resistance forces. Some of them are also close to Iran. Some of them are still Iran-backed militias in some ways, but they're not attacking U.S. forces. And then you have Gataib Hezbollah, the resistance forces. Gataib Hezbollah itself leads the Hashid, but it's also part of the resistance and attacking the U.S. I mean, is that broadly right? And what explains the groups and their leaders' different trajectories? It's a rough categorization, and, you know, it all comes down to... Iranian policy in Iraq post-2003, that policy was trying to make sure that Iraq would never become a threat to Iran again. And in trying to achieve that, Iran made sure that it could work with the entire Shia spectrum, right? So in the beginning, Sadr as the only let's say, primary front figure of the Shia had never left Iraq, had never been exiled anywhere else. He had the benefit of being very close to his constituents. He was the one that could mobilize quickly. And the Iranians were supporting him and his group in the beginning. However, Sadr is a maverick, as we know, and he's difficult to control. And I believe that the Iranians noted that very quickly. And on top of that, they had other Iraqi resistance groups that were exiled in Iran that had fought alongside the Iranians against Saddam. So obviously, it would be easier for them to 
established groups from the ranks of organizations such as Badr. And this is also why we've seen a deliberate attempt by Iran to make sure that they had several groups to work with. So if one wouldn't cooperate, then the other one would. And so you've had this fragmentation across the Shia political spectrum and across these groups over a period of 20 years now. So to answer your question of why Kitab Hezbollah has taken the position that it has, well, Kitab Hezbollah is very much aligned with Iran's transnational vision to spread the Islamic revolution across the region. It is not only about Iraq. And Kitab Hezbollah views Iraq's security and stability through this prism. I want to get in a moment to the debate about US forces in Iraq and the coalition forces more broadly and, and sort of what they're doing. But before, can I ask about the presence of the Iraqi resistance groups, other Iraqi militias in Syria? What are they doing there? So among these resistance groups, there's probably a few thousand members, which is a fraction of the umbrella of the Hashd al-Shaabi, which uh, is some hundred thousand. But the important thing is that although these groups maintain brigades within the Hashd, they also have these kind of elite forces that operate outside of the Hashd, and those are the main ones responsible for conducting these attacks. And over the last decade, they have extended their networks into Syria. And the Syrian civil war was that opportunity for them to do so. And how do they interact with other Iran-backed forces in Syria? So Lebanese Hezbollah, for example, or some of the Syrian militias, or even the Syrian security forces? I mean, what, they have their own bases, their share bases? No. So look, I mean, this network works together, but it also does its own thing. So these groups have their own bases in Syria. They might visit Syrian army bases. They might coordinate on certain things or they might deconflict certain things, but they really have their own infrastructure in Syria. And they also work closely together with some of the Syrian-based resistance groups, such as Fatimiyun. So, and even with Hezbollah, Again, this network coordinates, but it does not necessarily enter each other's spaces of operation. Between them, they have quite clear boundaries in terms of where they operate. And who are they fighting now in Syria? I mean, there's still ISIS remnants, but it's mostly the Kurdish SDF or YPG that are fighting ISIS, right? So what are they doing mostly in Syria? So if you look at their strikes, they target U.S. bases in Syria. They target oil fields that the U.S. control. They target the SDF, just like they target the Kurds in, in Iraq, right? Because they're an ally of the U.S. And the main reason for them to be there is their own economic interests. Many of these groups, even Asaib al-Haq that isn't active in the resistance anymore, has, you know, there's an integrated economy so illicit trafficking of all sorts of things, you know, drugs, weapons, but also, I mean, flour or other types of goods that they have now become a part of. So if it was previously Iraqi and Syrian tribes that would smuggle stuff over the border, you know, they have now kind of infiltrated these tribes that have 
maybe become reluctant allies of these new people that are in these areas. But this has been going on for a decade now. These are quite established routes. We see them between Sinjar and, you know, northeastern Syria. We see it between Embar and, and eastern Syria. So they're not going anywhere. So we've talked in previous episodes about the relationship between Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah, Hezbollah in Lebanon, how Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah is really, you know, in lockstep in the way he thinks with Tehran, with the IRGC. We've talked also on previous episodes about Iran's relationship with the Houthis, much looser in some ways than the relationship with Hezbollah, even if it arms them and trains them and you know they share objectives in the region. How would you define the relationship between Tehran and Kataib Hezbollah, for example, or other resistance groups? I mean, clearly, you talked earlier about Ismail Khani, the leader of the Quds Force, visiting Iraq after the Tower 22 attacks, appears to have been important in getting Kataib Hezbollah to put out this statement saying it would stop attacks on the US. Plus, you mentioned the IRGC people in some of the Kataib Hezbollah bases. What's the best way to understand the relationship? Iran has had this kind of forward defense policy for quite a long time. And clearly that has included a network of partners in the region from Hezbollah in Lebanon to the Houthis in Yemen to the Syrian regime to these Iraqi groups. Iraq is very important for one simple reason, the geographic proximity to Iran. It's about Iran's uh, immediate sense of security. But in terms of, you know, to what degree do the Iranians control these groups? I tend to say that Iran doesn't greenlight the activities that these groups conduct. They are part of it because they have supplied the intelligence, information, weapons, they have trained them. They have helped them organize themselves, especially since the war against ISIS. Iran was instrumental in making sure that these groups would organize themselves, not only so they could fight ISIS, but also so they could become the security institution that they created, right? The Hashtashabi. But Iran interjects at critical moments. So Tower 22 appears to be one of these red lines, let's call it. The groups passed a, a threshold for escalation that Iran would have preferred not to see. So Iran is given quite a lot of leeway to these groups to act and make their own decisions in their own theaters, but they will intervene when their own security is at risk. And right now we have hit that limit in Iraq where the uh, Iranians had to pull the brake. So could we talk a bit then about the U.S.'s military presence in Iraq and the discussions between uh, Prime Minister Sudani's government and the U.S. about what that presence is going to look like in the future? How does the Tower 22 strike and the U.S.'s strikes in response, including this one last week in Baghdad, how are they going to play into those talks? We know that the U.S. is not going to leave uh, under threat or at least not under this level of pressure that would not allow the space for the Iraqi government to negotiate with them. But the fact that the Americans agreed to re-enter these talks that were underway before 7 October also shows that the Americans have realized that something need to be different right now. I mean, I think it's difficult 
right now to say where we will land, but I think that there is no way back for the Iraqi government on a timeline to end the mission of the international coalition forces in Iraq. When that is going to happen, if it's under Biden, that remains unclear and is very much dependent on how the situation evolves. And at the end of the day, it all started because of the war in Gaza. Now, the question is, will a ceasefire in Gaza stop the attacks altogether? I have a hard time seeing that simply because I think it has now taken a life of its own because they have benefited from it. They can pressure the Americans on their presence and they will continue doing so. And does Sudani himself, I mean, he's also someone that doesn't have particularly close ties to Iran, although he's supported by, as you talked about, some of the militia groups that do. But does he himself want the US troops out or is he just sort of balancing between different priorities and responding to pressure? Because the sort of idea of getting the coalition, at least the anti-ISIS coalition forces out, that's quite widely held among Iraqi Shia parties. So there's two sides to this. I think that the government actually does not want to end the mission. They don't want to end the mission, which is responsible for training and assisting the Iraqi security forces. They would like that to remain in some shape or form. What they are very uncomfortable with is the fact that the presence of the Americans under the coalition is enabling the U.S. to conduct attacks against other groups in the region that are not ISIS. And this is the main grievance of the resistance groups. That in essence, the U.S. forces that are there nominally to fight ISIS, in reality, they're there to curb the influence of Iran-backed militias, of Iran itself. At least the U.S. presence among the coalition forces, right? I mean, it's made up by many other countries and they are still there to fight ISIS and they do. But it is very obvious that their presence also enables the U.S. to counter Iran and its partners in the region. So there's this debate in the U.S. about what people call restoring deterrence. There's different ways to look at it. And in some ways, it seems the way you see it hinges to some degree, on your interpretation of Qasem Soleimani's killing, the killing of the IRGC, the Al-Quds commander that we talked about earlier, together with the leader of Qatayb Hezbollah back in early 2020. So people who think the US should be more forceful, who argue that the US should kill IRGC, Revolutionary Guards, people in Iraq, Syria and other places, strike at Iranian assets directly, even hit Iran itself. They argue that the US has not been tough enough and they say, look, during Trump's presidency, we killed Soleimani, this big Iranian figure. And that didn't prompt a major escalation. In fact, the opposite. It stopped Iran for a while targeting U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. I think others, us included, tend to say that it was pretty much luck that the missiles that Iran launched in response to Soleimani's killing didn't kill U.S. service people. They easily could have done. Things could easily have escalated much further. People may remember that Iran fired this barrage of missiles at U.S. bases. It was the first time, I think, for years that Iran itself, rather than its non-state allies, had done that. And it only wound down after Iran accidentally shot down a Ukrainian passenger aircraft near Tehran. So basically, it was really down to good fortune that this act of killing Soleimani didn't trigger something bigger. 
And as you said earlier, before the 7th of October, as part of this wider agreement with Iran and the US, a detainee exchange deal, a tacit understanding basically entailing Iran slowing its nuclear production for some sanctions relief. And as part of that, Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria stopped targeting US personnel. And that was through diplomacy. It wasn't through coercion or restoring deterrence. I guess part of the challenge now is that Tehran knows that the US really doesn't want a war in much the same way Washington knows Tehran doesn't. So that in some ways makes deterrence more complicated. But what do you make of this debate overall, looking at it from the perspective of Iraq, this sort of notion of restoring deterrence? I think so far we've seen that military action alone will not restore deterrence for a short period, maybe, yes, but not in the long term. And the killing of Qasem Soleimani was quite clear. It definitely threw the Iranians off for quite some time. It took over a year for his successor to, you know, get control over these groups, to enjoy their respect. But I think in a way, we're also back to where Qasem Soleimani was, right? There is no questioning in terms of whether resistance groups across the region are in line with Iran or not. And there is occasionally the disappointment with Iran among these groups. The groups in Iraq at the time vowed to avenge their killings if Iran wouldn't do so. Um, and, and we saw, you know, continued attacks between the U.S. and these groups uh, until 2021, um, when there was again negotiations between the Iraqi government and the U.S. And, and there was reduction in the number of troops in Iraq. So I think what all this tells us, and also the current period that we are in now, is that you cannot rely on, on military action alone. You will have to use diplomatic channels as well. And Lahib, what would happen if the US did just pull its troops out? Last time, you know, sort of infamously, the US pulled out with President Obama. I mean, it has far fewer troops in Iraq today than it did back then. I mean, only about two and a half thousand now. But last time, what? Obama pulled troops out. Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki started repressing Sunnis. ISIS seized much of the country and the US, sure enough, went back in to fight ISIS, as you talked about earlier. So how much is it possible to say what would happen if the US and other coalition forces, or the, the US are, are more numerous, if those forces pulled out? I think there would be implications for Iraq, um, for the Kurdistan region, and also for the stability of Iraq because if ISIS is not a threat right now, the grievances that, that gave rise to ISIS to some degree still exist. Uh, Iraq is in a better place. It is more stable. There is an uncomfortable peace, let's call it, between Shias, Sunnis, and Kurds. But it's very difficult to say what that will look like in two years from now or in five years from now. Uh, and is very much contingent on Iraqi governments ensuring that the policies of Nouri al-Maliki, uh, you know, back in 2012 and 2013, will not be repeated. Um, so, 
the U.S. presence is is not a guarantor for stability. I mean, you could argue otherwise in a way, considering what we're seeing right now. But the reality, too, is that Iraqi security institutions are not... Uh, you know, independent enough, right? I mean, there is a reason why uh, negotiations between the Americans and the Iraqis so far have still come to the conclusion that Iraq needs military assistance in terms of training, in terms of equipment, uh, etc. It also depends on the stability around Iraq and, and that not spilling over into Iraq, but it also depends on the Iraqi government making sure that the grievances that gave rise to ISIS would not be allowed to fester again. It seems a bit of a dilemma. No? On the one hand, US troops are there, generate a lot of resistance, particularly with what's happening in Gaza, the vulnerable. The US presence itself has a destabilizing element, but pulling out could have quite uncertain implications for Iraqi politics. Something of a catch-22. It is a catch-22, but let's also be clear. You know, if you ask the average Iraqi, um, most of them do not want to see the Americans leaving, not because they think that American presence in Iraq post-2003, you know, has brought them a flourishing society that is stable and secure, but because they are also concerned about Iran, right? That includes Kurds, Sunnis, and to some degree, also Shia, not all of the Shia population is for the idea of being under Iranian influence. And we saw that very clearly during the Tishreen protests that rejected both Iranian and U.S. presence in Iraq. Presumably, though, there could be negotiations about a U.S. troop presence that wasn't part of the coalition or, or other bilateral forces that's not part of the coalition, or is that not feasible? That is exactly what is happening. The goal of the Iraqi government um, that was outlined even before 7 October was to end the mission of the coalition forces and instead enter bilateral security and defense agreements with the countries in the coalition. So including the US, the UK, France and and. Those negotiations were already underway. With the U.S. in particular, though, it's quite difficult to to have them in an environment where Iran-backed groups and, and, and the U.S. are striking each other. And what should we expect next? We heard Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the beginning promising to strike when and where necessary. So are people in Iraq expecting more strikes? And Qatayb Hezbollah's statement that it would pause operations against the U.S., has it reversed that since the killing of its commander, last Wednesday in Baghdad? Well, interestingly, uh, the statement uh, by Qatab Hezbollah that followed the Tower 22 strike and preceded the strike of uh, this uh, significant KH commander uh, stated very clearly that Qatab Hezbollah would suspend its attacks. Um, and I, I think that that decision was motivated by uh, Iranian pressure uh, U.S. threats of retaliation and also the pressure by the Iraqi government. Uh, that statement also used a term, uh, passive defense. Now, that can be interpreted in many ways. Uh, it could mean that Kitab Hezbollah would retain the right to retaliate for a direct strike on them. I think, though, that we are at a stage now where they 
considered the the field kind of leveled. So they killed three American service members. The U.S. retaliated by killing a significant commander of theirs. But that also depends on what is the U.S. going to do next? Does the U.S. see or consider that uh, this strike now suffices in, in terms of uh, avenging these three service members killed? Or will they go further? And I think if they go further, uh, then we might see a different dynamic, especially considering that other resistance groups Harakat al-Nujaba and Kitab Sayyid al-Shuhada did not commit to posing attacks, uh, although they usually follow the example of Kitab Hezbollah, and so far they have, at least in Iraq. There hasn't been any uh, resistance attacks inside Iraq, although we've seen a few in Syria. Lahib, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Iraq, on everything that's going on in the Middle East, on our website, crisisgroup.org. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks as ever to all our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or atwood at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating or review. And I very much hope that you'll join us again next time.